I know this, uh, in this series, there have been some long passages for us to read. Um, but with that, I'm really thankful to be a part of a church that prioritizes God's word over man's word. And so every week, no matter how long the passage is, we're going to read it, right? Um, we're going to prioritize God's words over ours, especially on a day like today, right? When you guys are stuck with me, uh, as Kellyanne said a minute ago, Liam and Olivia had a wedding last night uh, over in South Carolina, a couple hours away. Um, and, and they uh, decided to kind of give them a, a Sunday off. He asked if I, would, if I would fill in and look at Daniel chapter 3. Um, so if, if we haven't met, my name is Jamie. I serve as an elder here. Uh, I'm super grateful that you guys chose to come and worship with us and get into God's Word this morning. Uh, as we just read, we're going to be continuing our series in the book of Daniel, and we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. Um, before we get too far, I'm going to go ahead and stop. I'm going to pray for our time this morning. So if you guys will bow your heads... I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the opportunity to come and get into your word, God. I pray that this morning would be beneficial. God, I pray that we would tear down the idols in our life. I pray that we would rid ourselves of distractions during this time this morning, and we would just allow your word to speak to us, God. Help me not to get in the way of what you have to say to us this morning. Uh, and I just pray that this time will be beneficial, Lord, and it would be pleasing to you as we just offer up our worship. We just ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So before we get into chapter 3 uh, too far, I do kind of want to just go back for a minute and catch up on how we got to this point in the book of Daniel. So in the opening chapter, if you guys remember, we were kind of introduced to the characters, right? We got King Nebuchadnezzar, we're introduced to the Babylonian Empire, and then we learned about Daniel uh, and kind of his faithful group of friends who were faithful to their Jewish heritage. They were faithful to the laws of their God despite being prisoners of war, basically, or being exiles in a foreign land. And then in the last two weeks, we've been in Daniel chapter 2. We read about this dream, right, that King Nebuchadnezzar had. If I butchered that this morning, I'm sorry. I've got to say it several times, so y'all just stay with me. Uh, it's a lot. It's a mouthful. Um, but the last two weeks, we got King Nebuchadnezzar in this dream. Uh, and we, we read about, if you guys remember, the art project that was on the drum stand up here. Uh, I chose to uh, omit any artwork from my sermon this morning. Hope you guys will be okay with that. Uh, but God had given Daniel and his faithful friends, who were teenagers at the time, um, favor in the kingdom because Daniel was able to not only, not only interpret this dream for the king, but to spell out exactly what it was, the dream that he was having. And so at the end of chapter 2, we read that King Nebuchadnezzar had acknowledged God, right? He acknowledged his power, but I think it's... Uh, it's important to realize that he didn't submit to God's power yet. And, so, and we're going to see kind of the, some of the results of that as we read Daniel chapter 3. One thing that's really important, too, to point out is that between chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Daniel, about nine years have gone by. So if you just read this thinking this happened like the next day or the next week, it won't make a lot of sense. But nine years had gone by between where we left off last week and Daniel chapter 3 this morning. So... After nine years, the, the, the empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, they had kind of gone on about their business as this, this pagan empire, this pluralist nation that believed in multiple gods, and they had forgotten all about God uh, that Daniel and his faithful friends, as we'll, we'll coin them this morning, uh, had introduced them at the end, to in the end of chapter 2. Um, so real quick, I do want to do a show of hands, and this is not meant to embarrass anybody. Who has heard of Daniel chapter 3? Who's heard this story before? Who's heard of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace? A lot of people, right? That's not meant to embarrass anybody. It's not a test. But I want to point out that, honestly, I think if this, is, if this morning is the first time hearing this story, I think you're probably at an advantage. 
Um, because if you've heard this story before, it's easy to just kind of gloss over um, the things that we come familiar with. These iconic passages in Scripture, right? We learn about them in, in Sunday school or Connection Kids, right? And on up, and we hear them over and over and over. They can kind of lose, lose some of their luster. Um, it's easy to skim over these types of story in the Bible because we've heard them before. But what that can do is it can cause us to miss things that I think we really need to deal with uh, throughout different stages of our, of our Christian life. And so uh, since it's Memorial Day and we're celebrating America, I thought a gun analogy would be fairly fitting this morning. Um, so like I said, when Liam told me that I was going to be doing the fiery furnace, I was like, okay, cool. This will be, you know, I've heard this story before. I've learned it since I was a little kid. It'll be pretty easy to come up with something. But as I got into it, it's kind of like it's kind of like a shotgun, right? When you shoot a shotgun and it spreads out the pellets, there's all these application and there's all this historical context. And it's like I said, it's like a shotgun that just that spreads out all of these themes and all of this application. Um, one of the things is, you know, that this idol is it was built in the same place where the Tower of Babel was back in Genesis chapter 11. And you can take that theme and you can run with it and you can do a whole sermon. I was really kind of having difficulty narrowing it down, right? Uh, these, these characters and these key points, that it can be overwhelming if our goal is to get to one singular point or one singular message. And I think that should be the goal, right? Um, when we study a section of Scripture, it should be more like a rifle on a target. There should be one thing that we can take away that's clear that God's trying to tell us in the message as opposed to the shotgun spread. And so in the Old Testament in particular, it can be really easy to miss the point if we don't look at the Old Testament through what we call a gospel-centered lens, um, a gospel-centered lens means we're looking for Jesus even in the Old Testament, right? Because the purpose of the Old Testament is to look forward to Jesus, and the New Testament is to look back and build our church in, as a result of Jesus. And so this morning, instead of uh, kind of taking everything on, from, on, a, on a surface level or just looking things on a surface level, hoping an angel will rescue us from the fire, or hoping we get rescued from a figurative lion's den, right? Uh, in Daniel chapter 6, I want us to look a little bit deeper and I want to understand that God is primarily trying to show us who he is and what Jesus will ultimately come to fulfill and redeem. And that's any Old Testament passage. It applies to this one, but any time in the Old Testament, I'll say it one more time. I want us to look for what God is trying to show us about himself and what Jesus will eventually come to fulfill and redeem. And if we don't come to scripture with that focus, it can be easy to miss this. An example, I heard a story of this week. There was this church in Kansas, right, that had fallen into this trap. I don't know if you saw this or not. Um, but by not looking at a gospel-centered lens, they completely missed the point of an Old Testament passage that was famous. And I really wish I was making this up. Um, but there's this pastor, he read the story in Joshua 6, right, where the Israelites were told to circle the city of Jericho, blow a trumpet, uh, and God would take the city and he would give it to the Israelites. Well, this pastor in Kansas looked at the Old Testament without a gospel-centered lens, and he thought that his church was going to march around their city in Kansas seven times and blow a trumpet and that God was going to take the city, right? That, that should be kind of, it's kind of funny that that's what we take from it. That's a true story. I'm sure the guy had good intentions, but when we read the Old Testament, that's not what we're supposed to take and do with the Old Testament. That's not what God's purpose of the Old Testament is for us as a New Testament church here in 2023, right? So this morning, as we get into it, instead of you know building an idol, right, or lighting a furnace, um, 
I think there's four things that we can take from this passage, having that gospel-centered lens and that gospel-centered focus that hopefully will, will genuinely apply to us here in our current context in the present, in the present day and age. Because I think as a, as a New Testament church, I think it's, it's, it can be really easy to just get the gang together and go tear down a statue, right? And talk about how evil the world is getting out there and how the world is going to pot and how everything outside of us is getting worse and worse instead of doing the real work of identifying the idols in our own hearts and joining together in genuine biblical community to tear down these idols that nobody may ever know about, right? That's where the difficult work of the Christian comes in, and that's what I want us to try to do this morning. If you're taking notes, the first thing I want to point out this morning is that we will all be confronted with idols, right? Without exception, God has created every human being with a desire to worship, and we will fill that void with something. Everybody's going to fill that void for worship with something. Idols compete for that space that God designed for him and him only, and we'll fill it with anything and everything that will distract us from worshiping him. The term idol, you know, I say it, and we throw that term around church a lot. Um, it's one of those church terms that, it, like I said, we throw it around, but I think it's important this morning to clearly define what an idol is biblically so we know exactly what it is that we're being confronted by. Any good soldier needs to know what, what his opposition is, right? So we want to define idol. John Piper, a very respected pastor, says that anything in the world that successfully competes with our love for God is an idol. So in America and Western cultures, right, we're not, we're not usually talking about statues and man-made figures and this 90-foot thing that King Nebuchadnezzar built, right? When we accurately define what an idol is, we quickly realize that we're surrounded by an ambush of idols in our culture. One way that I like to put it is anything that we give an inappropriate amount of weight to in our life should be treated as an idol. Many idols are, in fact, good things, things that we treat as ultimate things, right? If we take good things and treat them as ultimate things, then that thing has become an idol. A couple of things that came to mind, our family, even our church, right? I, I don't know if we're supposed to say that here, but I think we can. Our career, our kids, all of these things are gifts from God, and we should treat them as such. But much like the people in the Old Testament, we take these things that are gifts from God, that come from God, and we make them ultimate things. We allow them to take over and we assign too much weight to them in our life. Let's take a look at in this passage real quick at an example of where I think we see this. Looking at verses 4 through 6, it says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, all kind of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And so we see that this idol that the king built, he had constructed, it applied to everybody. It was not only for a specific set of people. No matter what background, social status, race, gender, etc., everyone was confronted with this idol that the king had built. And what idols do is they demand our worship. There's no neutral idol. They demand our worship. Worship is, this, is an exclusive thing. It's an all or nothing thing. I remember I had this professor at Georgia Southern. I'll never forget this guy. He said, there's things in life that are all yes or all no. He said, it's like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not, right? There's no in between. There's no half percentages. Worship is the same way. We either worship something or we don't. We don't get the option to divide our heart into sections, right? 
give a certain percentage to God, a certain percentage to family, a certain percentage to career, and on down the list. It doesn't work that way. The thing we worship is the thing that all other things fall underneath and become subservient to. When our heart is set on God, everything else falls into place the way that it should and in an appropriate manner. But the second that we allow something else to take God's rightful place, chaos ensues. And that's where, that's where Satan thrives. That's where the enemy wants us. His goal is to create chaos. We see that all throughout Scripture. A scripture that came to mind was 1 John chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16. John explains this, this exclusive nature of our worship. He says, Do not love anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but they come from the world. I think if, if we read this and we're honest with ourselves, this should kind of be sobering for us, Right? At one point or another in our life, we've all gotten our priorities mixed up. We've all allowed something to take the place of God in our heart. And so that leads me to our next point, if you're taking notes, right? We have all bowed to our idols. We have all bowed to our idols. And this is where I want to touch again on the importance of, 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 an, of a gospel-centered lens, even when we're studying and we're reading in the Old Testament. Because on the surface of Daniel 3... It looks like this is a cut and dry case, right? It looks very simple. Hey, just don't bow to the idol. The world's going to throw some crazy stuff at us, right? I think it's an easy, it's an easy analogy to make. The world's going to throw all these crazy idols at us, but if we try hard enough, or if we believe hard enough, or we go to church enough, right? We can be like the guys in the story. We can make God happy. But there's one big problem with that interpretation, right? And that's the point. Not a single one of us is capable of pleasing God and giving Him the necessary amount of, of glory by our own power and by our own strength. Let's look at verse 12. This is where this idea came from. Verse 12 says, But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. If you guys remember, several weeks back, we had a guest speaker. His name was Will Snipes. And one of the things that I remember he said, he said, when we come to Scripture, we read it like a yearbook, right? We open Scripture and we want to know, okay, where am I? When you open a yearbook at school, most kids just got out of school, right? AJ's was sitting on the counter. I said, AJ, open it up, show it to me. The first thing he did was show me his picture, right? That's what we do. We come to Scripture. We want to know where are we at? Where are we at in Scripture? We always tend to place ourselves in the shoes of the character that we feel like we most relate to. And typically, we place, our our, our, we place ourselves in the shoes of the hero. When we read this story, we want to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so bad, despite their unfortunate choice of names. We want to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the most accurate place that I think we find ourselves is it's here in verse 12, and it's not in the obvious place. It says there are some Jews... There were more than four Jews, right? We've talked about Daniel and his faithful friends. We've talked about this crew of four that were in exile. But there were thousands of God's people in exile. It wasn't just these four. These four are the special ones. And in our individualistic society, right, we want to be the special ones. We want to relate to the ones that make headlines, the one that had scripture written about them. But I think in reality, we should relate with the other Jews, the ones that aren't mentioned. 
Because we have moments, right, where we do the right thing from time to time. But from my experience, I let God down every single day. And I think if we're honest, we all can say that. I have idols in my heart that I choose to give glory every single day over God. So the Jews not mentioned here are the ones that went with the majority, right? They went with the crowd. They feared the king that God had appointed instead of the king of the world that God had established himself as just a few years earlier in, 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 uh, in chapter 2. And look, I know this is getting to the point where it's challenging, right? It seems like it's negative and it's discouraging just for the sake of being harsh, but that's not what's going on, right? I think it's important that when we come to Scripture, we have got to first be honest with ourselves, or it will never apply to our life in the way that it's meant to. We've got to come to Scripture as a, from a place of reality, not a place of fantasy. The gospel only makes sense when we realize how sinful we are, how in need of a Savior we really are, and if we don't see ourselves in the correct places in Scripture, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we are examples of faithfulness instead of examples of sinfulness. But the point of, the, the point of Scripture, all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, regardless, is to point out that Jesus is the hero, not us. And without Him, we are hopeless to please God, and we can't come into a relationship with God without the faithfulness of Jesus not whatever man-made faithfulness we think we can drum up on our own, right? So now that we've established the bad news, we've gotten that out of the way, can we get to the good news? I've learned that if you, if you just start with the bad news and you finish with the good, people end up happier. I use that on my wife. Um, but let me go on before I get in trouble. The next point, uh, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus never bowed. Jesus never bowed. The reason that we can have complete trust in Jesus is because he never bowed to the idols that he was faced with. He was completely faithful throughout his time on earth, and he never bowed to the temptation that the world threw at him. A great example of this is when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to turn there. I don't know if it's on the screen or not, but I'm going to just read it for us really quick. First 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you were the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you were the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will, lift it, they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The enemy's trying to use scripture against Jesus, right? In verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord, God, the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said, Away from me, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. So there's a couple of, a couple of very important things that we see here. Um, get back in my spot here. A couple of very important things that we see. One, the Spirit was with Jesus and led Jesus to be tempted. <clears throat> so because of that, we know that it was necessary, Right? We know that it was from God, and we know that the Spirit was with Jesus. This was not 
out of plan, right? God was not surprised by this temptation. The Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. We also see that Jesus responded with truth from Scripture when he was tempted. And then finally, we see that Jesus mentions worship when standing against temptation. I don't think we often think about worship when it comes to standing against temptation, but that is an act of worship. Worship's not something that we just do when things are going according to plan. We are to serve and worship Jesus only, not just under special circumstances, right? Worship is not just something that we come and do on Sunday mornings. Our entire life is an act of worship, and Jesus showed us how to do that faithfully. This is one of the many examples in the Gospels where Jesus was completely faithful in his task of doing the Father's will. He never bowed to the idols. He never allowed Satan to win. So then when we come back to Daniel, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. This is how they answered the king. Verse 17, it says, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, um, yeah, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We see a lot of Jesus' response right there, right? There's a lot of parallels. And what we can do as New Testament believers, we can trust that God is also able to deliver us from the furnace. Despite us bowing to our idols. Not because we're faithful against temptation, because we, 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 we fall every day, right? But because Jesus was faithful in his answer against temptation. In the Gospels and all throughout Scripture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't necessarily represent how we can respond to temptation ourselves, but they more so represent the way that Jesus responded on our, on our behalf. I talked earlier about how this is, a, this is a familiar passage, right? If you've been in church for a while, if you've grown up, you've probably heard this story. And the part that everybody remembers is the furnace, right? We remember the dramatic rescue from the furnace. But before we got to that part, I want to make sure that we understand how the gospel applies to the furnace before we get to it, because this should make the part of the story, it should make the famous part of the story have a more clear and more defined meaning, because this is where we see Jesus. At the beginning of the series, Liam promised that we would get to Jesus in every story, so hopefully we're being faithful in doing that. <clears throat> if you remember from, from when Ty was reading, there was this fourth figure, right? And there's a ton of, there's a ton of uh, theological debate, I guess you would call it, a bunch of uh, highly educated, very smart people get around and they debate who this fourth figure was in the fire. And to be honest, I'm really not, I'm not qualified to really have much of an opinion on that. I sell drinks for a living, right? I don't get to, uh, I don't get to sit around and, and, and dive deep into these, these uh, fine theological points. Um. <clears throat> But some experts say that the fourth figure in the fire was an angel. Some say it was a pre-incarnation of Jesus himself. Some say it was just a spiritual being that came from God. Regardless of the specifics of the fourth figure, I don't want us to get hung up on that. We just need to know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew. And, that's, and, that's what was, and without a shadow of a doubt, they knew that God was able to deliver them from the furnace and God is able to deliver us from the furnace of evil that exists in our world. But more importantly, God is able to deliver us of the furnace of evil that exists in our own hearts. It exists within us. And so my last, my last point this morning, 
is that Jesus rescued his church from the ultimate furnace. Again, I'm going to go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. I don't think this is going to be on the screen either. I'm going to read just a couple of verses. Verses 40. Matthew 13, starting in verse 40. He says, As the weeds are pulled, this is Jesus speaking, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out His kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Then they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And so this is, this is a point in Scripture where I, where I think Jesus is referencing what the furnace in Daniel 3 actually represents. He even uses the same terminology. He calls evil the furnace that he will rescue us from. There's this theme throughout Scripture. One of the things that I think can be a little bit distracting about this passage, if we just take it at the surface, is there's this theme throughout Scripture that, that talks about fire and it talks about refinement, right? Like, like, like when you refine gold, it becomes more pure. And that's, there's a theme throughout Scripture. That is a very true thing. But I don't think that's what this furnace is, is, is necessarily talking about. I believe that this furnace is more about our salvation than it is our sanctification. And even though we fall short of God's glory every day, we bow to idols that the world throws at us every single day, we can walk in victory with our robes unscorched and no smell of fire on us because we have faith in the one who did not bow to the idols of this world. And that's something that should, that should stir us to worship, right? That should stir us to a response to the gospel, to worship the one true God that we learned about in Daniel 1. Not all the other gods of, of Babylon, not all the other gods and idols of our culture. That should stir, up to, stir us to worship the one true God. So I'm going to ask the band if they can, the band can come on up. We're going to sing a song kind of, of, of reflection. And as they come up this morning, I just want to challenge us to do a couple of things. The first thing I want us to do is I want us to identify the areas of our life that we assign too much weight to. I want us to call out these idols that exist in our heart. An easy way to do that is just to ask yourself the question, what do I run to when things get hard? What do I run to when I'm tired, when I'm stressed, when I'm hungry, right? So as we sing, I want us to lay those things down. I want us to ask God to forgive us to running to those things instead of running to Him. There may be people here today who have, have truly understood the gospel for the first time. We may need to publicly say, hey, I've been chasing the world and I've been chasing idols for too long. I want to commit my life to following Jesus for the first time. We would love to help somebody walk through that today. I'll be down front in a minute. We've got people in a black shirt. If you've got a connect group leader that you trust, that you want to talk through that with, we would love to see somebody get saved. We're going to sing. Part of, what, part of what we're going to sing is this chorus of, I've decided to follow Jesus. When I was really kind of shaping my, my faith and taking my faith seriously for the first time, we, we went on this trip to Haiti. And it, this, this song has always stood out ever since then because we were here in these, these churches that meet, I mean, anywhere. You know, they're in rundown shacks on the side of the road, just these faithful pastors, right? And they have to sing simple songs. They don't have bands like we have. They're not blessed with all, this, with all this stuff. All they have is their voices a lot of times. And they're really big on clapping and body motion. 
But one of, the, one of the songs that we sang at every one of these churches that we went and visit was, I've decided to follow Jesus. They sang it in Creole, right? And so they taught us, Americans, right, that don't know any many languages, they taught us this simple phrase of, I've decided to follow Jesus. And we all lifted up our voice and we sang it together in Creole. And so this morning, I want us to sing that song and I want us to, I want us to mean it. I want it to be genuine no matter how many times we've sang it. If you're singing it for the first time, if you're singing it for the thousandth time, I just pray this morning that we would run to Jesus, that we would lay these idols down. Pray that we would leave this place with a, a hunger and a desire to join in, in real biblical community, talk through these idols, because we can't do it alone, y'all. So let me pray for us really fast, and then we'll sing a song of worship together. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. God, we thank you that you are strong enough to go against the, the idols of the world, to turn from the temptation when we are not, God. God, I pray this morning that whatever is getting in the way of us, of genuinely giving you our whole heart, genuinely giving you our, our worship, God, I pray that we would just lay that down, that we would tear it down. God, we see this story of King Nebuchadnezzar this morning. God, at the end of the story, again, he acknowledges your power, but he does not tear down his idol that he created. And so I pray this morning, God, that we wouldn't be a people that just come and acknowledge that you can do great things. I pray that we would tear down the idols in our life and we would put you in the place where you rightly belong, right at the center of our hearts, God. God, we love you. We just lift up this church to you, God. I pray that you would use us in a mighty way in our community. We pray for those that are struggling. God, use us to meet needs to those around us. We just lift all this up in the name of Jesus.